Welcome to another episode of Follow the Brand. I am your host, Grant McGaw, CEO of Five Star BDM, a five-star personal branding and business development company. I want to take you on a journey that takes another deep dive into the world of personal branding and business development using compelling personal stories, business conversations, and tips to improve your personal brand. By listening to the Follow the Brand podcast series, you will be able to differentiate yourself from the competition and allow you to build trust with prospective clients and employers. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. Make it one that will set you apart, build trust, and reflect who you are. Developing your five-star personal brand is a great way to demonstrate your skills and knowledge. If you have any questions for me or my guests, please email me at grant.mcgaugh, spelled M-C-G-A-U-G-H, at 5star BDM, B for brand, D for development, M for masters.com. Now let's begin with our next five-star episode on Follow the Brand. And welcome to the Follow the Brand Podcast. I am your host, Grant McGough, CEO of Five Star BDM, where we help you to build a five-star brand that people will follow. Have you heard the words non-compliant or not adherent in a clinical setting? Dr. Moverine Beverly has. She has developed a care management program to get to the root cause of this patient population to reduce hospital readmissions. Dr. Beverly says, we must treat the whole person and not just the patient. In the case of sickle cell patients who are the least addicted, yet the most vilified when it comes to empathetic care. She has a progressive training program that asks the question, why? To reveal the human values in a clinical care setting. Her cultural competency program targets patients that have been targeted as non-compliant and have reduced their readmission rates substantially. Her non-judgmental empathetic approach has proven to be a very effective method for improving patient outcomes. Dr. Marvarine Beverly is an executive level physician with 20 years of experience advocating for improving patient engagement and cultural competence for all populations, especially the geriatric, immigrant, and African-American communities. As AVP, Physician Advisor for NYC Health and Hospitals, she sponsored the first conference on improving the health of the elderly Black population. She implemented the concept of the bridge team, whose role was to bridge the gap and care for the most complicated and vulnerable population, and as a result, improve care and health outcomes. As Deputy Executive Director of Kings County Hospital, her team decreased congestive heart failure for readmission from 30% to 18.7% in less than two years. Dr. Beverly is a fellow at the New York Academy of Medicine and her abstract health disparities and epidemics, which is called Perception versus Reality, was selected for presentation at NYAM 
during its 12th annual History of Medicine and Public Health Night. Dr. Beverly is also a member of the American Medical Association and Medical Society, State of New York, working in collaboration with Westchester County Medical Society, Westchester Academy of Medicine, and Putnam County Medical Society in developing patient engagement and cultural competent training programs with CME credits. Dr. Beverly received her bachelor's from Boston University and MD from University of Buffalo School of Medicine. She completed her internship and residency in internal medicine at Harlem Hospital in New York, Columbia Presbyterian. She is the president of Marverine Beverly MD PLLC Patient Engagement and Cultural Competence Specialist. Let us welcome Dr. Beverly to the Follow Brand Podcast, where we are building a five-star brand that you can follow. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode on the Follow the Brand Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about culture, and we're going to talk about culture in medicine, specifically in the clinical field. We've got Dr. Beverly here with us today. She's very passionate. I've known her for a number of different years, and we met through the National Association of Health Services Executives, which has been wonderful. We've had a lot of ongoing conversations. She's one of my first clients, actually, at, at Five Star BDM, and I really appreciated her, but I really pre- it was her story that was so, so intriguing. So I'd like to bring her up. Let's just get, get an introduction going. So Dr. Beverly, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? And I am wonderful because you're on the show, and we're going to talk about what you are most passionate about. Now, I know you've been a physician in, in New York City, you know, for a long period of time where there's not a lot of people of color practicing medicine, and then you've made this pivot into training. Is that is that right? And I think, Grand, when we ask each other, you know, is any of your children physician? I think out of the two and 200, if there were five, that was a lot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So I think that had everybody, let's say, and I'm not, people get to choose what they want to do. So I'm not making a judgment at all. But I think the gap in it is that the, if Harlem Hospital in New York is representative across the country, then the gap is the age group, our, our children, excuse me, our adult children or adult individuals would be physicians today and the, the gap would not be as wide. And that's just a personal opinion. And I would never have thought about that until we had the reunion and we were trying to connect, you know, with everybody and try to figure out where's everybody, the children, how many kids, you know, what do they do, you know, and, and I just found that interesting. I, I think it's very, very interesting. I hear about all the time. I've seen, you know, blackdoctors.org, they talk about um, you know, what's it? Uh, black man in white coats. Things right. Like that. And we talk about at Meharry, they're always, you know, we need more doctors, we need to recruit, we need to bring them in. So this is a big thing. Yeah. But I want to talk more about what you've been doing. Now, you have a passion, a great yes. passion for decreasing health disparities, particularly among the elderly Black populations and individuals with sickle cell disease. And I want to know, how did that passion come about? Okay. So I think it was back in 2007, I was um, hired by at 
by actually uh, Dr. Sullivan, who was in charge of Queen's Health Network, which was in charge of Elmhurst and Queen's Hospital, which is a part of New York City Health and Hospital. And she was forward thinking in the sense that she wanted to develop the care management program. And back then, care management was not, you know, part of the conversation. And because I worked previously in community health centers, you know, um, and was very familiar with um, the requirements for the community. And I also trained at Harlem Hospital, Columbia Presbyterian. So I think I, I had the knowledge and what she was looking for to help develop a program. And the interesting thing, she didn't give me anything, any information. She said, it's up to you to develop the program. So I interviewed with the chief medical officers in both hospitals, the head of the emergency room, the head of nursing, you name it, head of social worker. And I came up with the concept of the care management program, the bridge team. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the bridge team, bridge the gap. Whatever the gap is, bridge the gap. And it's an opportunity for the team to have a little extra time to speak to patients and family to find out what's important to them and how do we transfer that information to the clinical team and make it so that the transition of care and the care received in the hospital is, is really coordinated and, and, and the best interest of the patient. And, the, and so the bridge team... Um, so in the team, it's made up of case managers, care managers, social workers, you know, clerical associate in both hospitals and the head of care management in both hospitals who reported to me. So we had to design the program. And what was interesting is that in Elmhurst is a large Asian Hispanic population. And then it was a growing Russian population in Queens. <clears throat> it was a large um, African-American population. And at that time, the second most uh, popular group then was um, Guyanese. There were Indians from Guyana. And so it was interesting dynamic. You know, the difference in, 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 in population couldn't be more diverse than that. So anyway, um, so the whole idea of the bridge team was, let's look at who are the most vulnerable populations and see how we could coordinate the care and help that family. and and the hospitals um, collaborate in a, in a much more effective manner. And so I was told to see this 18-year-old in Elmhurst, in, I'm sorry, in Queens, and um, she's forever embedded in my brain. So the team, the bridge, nine o'clock in the morning, the bridge team goes, you know, and we're about to enter her room. And she gave us the body language, I'm on my phone, you know, so I said, okay, let's hold off. And, you know, so the team is whispering. That's what they say. She's so disrespectful. You know, she's so attitudinal. And I'm thinking, what 18-year-old is not attitudinal without a life-threatening disease? <laughs> you know, yeah. why don't we just give her the benefit of the doubt? And so she finished, got off the phone and we we're about to enter her room. And like I said, the statements, and that's what I think these, what I call stop in your tracks moment, because this is not what you anticipate when you develop a program that you think is really comprehensive. And Granchi said, if you have a cure, come in. If you don't, and she pointed her finger, keep walking. Wow. 
So <laughs> did I? Oh my God! So they're now interested. So there, it, it even gets uh, more interesting. So it's like I became the child and she became the adult because guess what she said? I'm going to repeat myself one more time. Did you hear what I said? Is oh. that what we tell our children when they're not following direction? <laughs> if you have a cure coming, if you don't keep walking. And I said, wow. And, you know, I said, I don't have a cure, but let me think about what you said. And I had to come back and speak with you. I came back and speak to her at five o'clock that evening. And she's 18. At 16, her mom got off the bus, developed chest pain from work, got taken to a hospital and died of a heart attack. At 17, her sister was admitted to a hospital with sickle cell crisis and sepsis and died. She's now 18. She lives with her uncle. And from the way she described him, I'm just putting in very simple language. He didn't seem to be a touchy-feely type of guy. He seemed to be more food, clothing, and shelter type of guy. And she said another powerful statement. She said, you doctors don't teach me about sickle cell. Sickle cell teaches me. Mm. And so here is this supposedly disrespectful attitudinal person who is very analytical, understands her conditions and is very intellectually, very capable of assessing circumstances. So I said to her, have anybody ever referred to you to a therapist? She said, no. Have you ever had depression screening? She said, no. And she teared up and literally sort of hugged each other, you know, and she said another powerful statement. She said, you know, you doctors don't teach me about sickle cell. Sickle cell teaches me. So if you look at who this intellectual person is, as opposed to being you know, disrespectful, that whole per- perception, you know. Um, and so it is, was really her getting to know her and getting to understand. Um, we ended up, I designed a program to, to form the first sickle cell support group at Queens. And I collaborated with the, with the head of the, the department, of, I mean, the emergency department. So when a patient came in, there's a protocol that was developed. The care managers who was in the emergency room would contact that person, go and see that person. In addition to the physician and the physician assistant, whoever was assigned to that, population, that person, and the care manager would ask him or her, would you like to join the support group? And for the first, and I went and looked at the literature, looked at research. I spoke to sickle cell organizations, different hospitals across the nation back then, and there was no adult sickle cell support group. Mm-hmm. And when I asked, did anybody do depression screening on this population? And no, the answer was no. And so this is one of, like I said, one of these stop in your tracks moment that cause you to really zero in on the individual not the patient, who is that individual and create an environment that you understand because the patient is not the sum total of that individual. It's a part of that individual. And we started, so we would, when patients would come to the emergency room and they had to eliminate the word drug seeker because the, the medical literature does not support, they're the least um, addicted, but the most vilified for patients who require pain management. And there's a statement from Dr. Zemsky, who was a hematologist, and I, it's another statement that is also part of my mindset. 
He said, difficult patients are not just born. Sometimes they're created through the medical system. Not only the system failed to cure, they may have done not so nice things to make matters worse. You know, and so when we formed the sickle cell support, we had about 15 people and we had before at lunch, we provided lunch and we had it an hour before hematology clinic. And when you heard some of those stories, oh my goodness. Um, and I just say a patient said, um, I, you know, I hate my, I, th- I heard her say, I hate my mom. I said, oh my God, how do you hate your mom? Oh my God, you know, and as a mother then, you know, of, of, of adolescence, I said, she says, oh no, no, I don't hate her now. I know she loves me over the moon, but I never understood when I was younger why she would side with the doctors to keep me in so much pain. Why didn't they just let me die? Wow. I said, ouch, you know, and then yeah, I learned yeah. about the, the family in, in involvement and just the last story I'm going to say. So it's two children. One had sickle cell disease, one did not. The, the daughter had it. The son did not. The son was on a basketball team and the team never made it anywhere except first round, you know, and then they were all knocked out. This particular time, they made it to the semifinals. And so the family was excited. They were planning to go. She developed sickle cell crisis at, at 1, 1 a.m. in the morning. So the family went with her and he had to go to the game by himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's when I realized that counseling. And so we added a therapist to 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 the team because, you know, they need therapy. You know, it's um, because of the inter interaction, the dynamic and what's sad in the healthcare system. They don't talk about family traumas in patients with sickle cell disease, you know, and how is that managed, you know. And so it was really humbling. And. And over the course of time, um, I speak with the emergency room director, and he said, all the contentiousness, all that stuff is gone. You know, they have, they have an assigned physician assistant who sees that person, and that person would contact the primary care doctor and say, John Brown is in the emergency room, or the hematologist. You know, so there's a humanizing of, of these individuals. And it was really humbling. Um, so when I go back and say, you know, um, that my passion is, is to, you know, just get rid of the stigma. This is just a disease. Patients with sickle get rid of it. And the reason why they go to the emergency room, the literature, medical literature states, because they're undertreated at the first go round. Mm-hmm. It's been proven they're undertreated. So if you're undertreated and now, you know, you're, a couple of hours that you have the pain because you didn't get the amount of medication that you needed. So now when you go into the emergency room, well, you were just at this hospital, you know, oh, so you're drug seeking. Okay. I think everything you're talking about, you know, it, it's compounded by the fact that people of color historically have had gaps in care in the healthcare system. That's just true. And then when you compound that with specialized, you know, uh, disease care, uh, sickle cell, and if you don't understand that, or what I heard from you just now, and you've talked about this a number of different times, is the concept of the human, the common threat. What's the common threat? Not only on the patient side, but on the on the clinical side. So that's the, and this is a complete family, the, the human experience, and you mentioned that you know, some solutions may be as simple 
as they are complex. Now, do you have the specific examples of simple solutions? Absolutely. So I just want to just explain the common thread a bit. So once individuals came to our institution and they were given a diagnosis that they did not want, who wants the diagnosis of cancer? But once accurately diagnosed, it's non-negotiable across all race, religion, ethnicity, country of origin, socioeconomic status. The billionaire can't say, oh, I'll give you a million dollars to take the cancer back. Oh, that's not enough, I'll give you five million. There is no, in terms of you know, giving back that disease, is no different with a homeless person than a billionaire. It's non-negotiable. And maybe if we understand that, we could be more empathetic as opposed to judgmental. Because in life, we have choice. You don't like the school your kids go to, you could change it. You don't like your crappy job. You don't like your family members, you could move to another state. If you bought something for 30, 60, 90 days and contract, you could return it. But when it comes to uh, accurately diagnosed disease, it, there's no one that can give it back. So now how you may deal with your disease and how I may deal with it may be different based on who we are, the individual, our culture, and so forth. And I think once you capture that and to recognize that the people, the, doc, the, the clinical team that are hospitalized, the majority of patients, I mean, doctors or nurses taking care of patients never been in, laid in a hospital bed. <laughs> yeah. And, but the ones that did were women delivering life and patients are trying to prevent death. You know, so these are some of the areas that we can collaborate on and to make it a more, you know, um, empathetic and in the concept of do no harm. You know, so so that's what I just wanted to clear up. And you mentioned about um, simple solutions to health disparity. Absolutely. So um, you ever heard the word non-compliant? I, 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 I've heard the word non-compliant, but what does that mean in action? Okay. You know, in you ever heard, there's a nicer word now, non-adherent. Non-adherent. That's, non-adherent. I think it's the oh, same. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, like, that's like, <laughs> so what I see going on in healthcare now, we're changing the language and make it nicer. They don't talk, when it started, it was health disparity. Now it's health equity. Then now we started with, health, with um, non-compliance, and so now we are non-adherent. What is missing between the non-compliant? Non-compliant means um, you didn't follow directions. You didn't take your medications. You didn't do what you were told to do from a, from a medical sense. Example, 60-year-old African-American male, and that negativity is more related to in the medical literature that's been proven for African-Americans. 60-year-old African-American male, recently diagnosed with congestive heart failure, returns two weeks later for heart failure decompensated due to non-compliance. So what does that mean? So this is, you're just diagnosed with heart failure. So when you get admitted, you think anybody upstairs in the unit is gonna care about you? Because, oh, so you don't care for yourself. Two weeks you got heart failure, you don't follow directions. I have other things to do. Right, yeah. So when we brought the patient in, of course, anybody that was on the the team, my interdisciplinary team, because I was in charge of the congestive heart failure readmission prevention program at Kings County when I moved from Elmerson, Queens to Kings, a deputy executive director. Um, and the team, if they didn't ask why, they know I was going to bug out. So ask why. 
X, Y. So you don't know why I didn't take the medication, but you're going to refill the same medication I didn't take. But you don't yeah. know why. Yeah, just repeat the same uh, cycle yeah. of non-compliance, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So then we asked the patient. It was a real case that I gave a 60-year African-American male for nuance of congestive heart failure. So we said, why don't you why don't you take your medication? He said, I can't take the water pill. And I'm glad you're sitting down. He said, why can't you take the water pill? Because I drive the number six train. <laughs> huh. <laughs> learning more about it okay yeah so you you can't drive the train because you can't say the train is delayed because the driver has to find a bathroom <laughs> you know so what he does so we brought in so when is your shift he said 11 p.m to 11 a.m what do you do when you go home i tend to he said i tend to do some chores make breakfast you know take some of my medications and take a nap but depending on my shift if it's going to be the shift i don't take the water pill, you know, because I, I just don't know where, you know, how I'm going to handle that. So I, so we, the cardiologist said, and we said, okay, so here is what you do. When you come home, it's probably a better time to take the water pill, even though it may make you up, wake you up in the day, you know, but by the time you get to your shift, which is 11 PM, you would have less of a, of a need to go to the bathroom, but to the degree that you do, will give you a cubicle that you could use it within the private space where you, as a driver. And you know what the patient says? Well, that works. If I knew I had to choose between peeing and breathing, I would have chosen breathing. <laughs> yeah. Very true, very true. Yeah. So you could see how that individual could be labeled as non-compliant, non-compliant. You know, and uh, if that person were to come back a month later and passed and died, and you go to mortality report, it would have said due to non-compliance. Mm -hmm. But so I think when I say the human interaction, but you have to value me to find out and you have to ask why. Why, 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 why? Because in medical school, we are trained to ask why the fever, why the headache, why the abdominal pain, why, why, why? But when it comes to a patient, an individual not supposedly following directions, we don't seem to want to know why. And it's a better way of collaborating because, Grant, if the perception of me is negative and it's not the reality, then my health is going to go south. But if the perception and the reality is the same, be it good, bad, happy or sad, there's an opportunity to collaborate and understand, you know. And um, and so when we ask why. We got answers that we could help. That patient, there is another case. Um, Let me ask you this before you mm -hmm. continue. Sure. That other case, because what you what I heard you say there is around the trust factor that you trust your, you know, whoever your attending physician is or your care team mm -hmm. to be able to talk to them and, and let them know. Now, I know that's a very personal thing. Hey, I work and I got to go to the restroom. I'm not taking this pill. You know, because it's causing me problems and I'm not reporting it back to you because, it, it, you know, I'm, I, I, first of all, I don't even know that you even do care about that. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know the effect of me not taking that pill. Like, has that mm -hmm. been completely explained? Like, hey, if you don't take this pill, this is this, this, this. What are the implications of that? So they can like, well, hey, this is the problem. we got to work this out. Do you have those kind of discussions? Yes, and 
it has to, again, it has to do with the human value. So another person from a different race who comes in and have the same circumstances, does that person get asked these questions? And if it doesn't work, do they say, bring the family and bring the wife in? Okay. I think, and it's improved in the medical records. And if you write non-compliance and not a nicer word, non-adherent in the medical record three times, that patient is under the help bus. Nobody wants to deal with us because you are the problem. You go fine. And I'm sure you have heard another negative word, frequent flyers. Yeah. Frequent yeah. flyers. So yeah, I yeah. can't prove this, but as I spoke to, and it's, it's, it's because I spoke to over a thousand patients, over a thousand patients, you know, and I think when you have that negative, non-compliant written medical record three times and nobody wants to deal with you, we literally could have possibility, possible turn that non-compliant without asking why into quote frequent flyer mm-hmm. because nobody wants to deal with that individual and it is a reason why with the congestive heart failure readmission prevention program we were able to decrease readmission from 30 percent to 18.7 in two years the population didn't change the clinical care the so-called social determinants of health you say people that were in the 30% was the same people in the 18.7. It wasn't like a whole bunch of rich people came in and they were in the 18.7. What changed was the improved height and human value, being non-judgmental and asking a simple question if something doesn't work. And what I also did was a lot of surveys for the perception reality. So what is, you heard HCAP scores, everybody's in the HCAP score was the Patients think about the care they receive in the, and would they recommend the hospital. But you don't hear a lot of surveys on. So what does the staff think about the population they serve? Because if it's negative, you could see how it may impact the HCAP score. So when we ask, I ask the patients, um, and when I do a surveys, I do the surveys. The same questions I ask the staff is the same questions I ask the patient. And interesting, this is where the learning curve. So we ask, why don't you take your medication? Why don't patients take your medication? And the overwhelming response was for this population, this cohort of patients, um, cost. They can't cost. afford it. Yeah, they mm-hmm. can't afford it. And it sounds reasonable. And this is from the ED, the inpatient physicians. Uh, when we asked the patient, do you know not one patient mentioned cost? What? You know what they said? You know what the top answer was? Why don't you take your medication? We think we are taking too many medications. <laughs> yeah. Because the yeah. average heart failure patients with comorbid conditions are taking like seven medications three times a day. Not one mentioned course. So what I'm saying, if you're designing a system based on your perception, that has nothing to do with reality. You could see how it's not going to, we're going to spin our wheels and it's going to go around. And so once we heard that, we were able to bring the pharmacist. She was an amazing pharmacist to look to see whether or not she can cut down some of the medication, increase, you know, um, um, you know, like the question, she, does a, a 80 year old person really need to be an anti-statin medication for high for, for cholesterol? You know, can we combine the, the antihypertensive medications? And we were able to cut down the medication, take at least about, two, about five as opposed to seven.
This episode is brought to you by Five Star BDM. Five Star BDM is a professional consulting and advisory group keenly focused on business development services for small to mid-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. Although every business is unique, they often share challenges that can be addressed through smart branding. Services include process improvement and operations, digital strategy and transformation, business intelligence, digital marketing, and personal branding. Our five-star business and personal branding company has helped a number of professionals and organizations to optimize and grow. The result is more business, more opportunities, better reach, positive outcomes. Please visit www.5starbdm.com to learn more and view all the episodes of Follow the Brand. such a disconnect. Talk about a gap that you have to cross over. Like if you feel that the problem here is the cost of the medication, and then on the other side, the person actually needs this medication and saying, hey, well, I got too many pills. And for example, my... my stepfather had, you know, he had to go through a heart surgery, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember him coming home from the hospital with, and I asked him, like, well, how many medications are you taking? He said about 20. I said, 20? 20? I mean, that's that's just a ridiculous amount of medication. Now, if I asked him, like, well, what's this for? He probably got to about four or five, and then, and then he's like, I don't know what the rest is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so that becomes a, a mess. And then maybe he stops taking that one because he doesn't really know yeah. what it's for. Exactly. You know, and then he ends up again, maybe in the hospital or something like that. And but you're saying that that communicate you have to have that communication Absolutely. constantly and oh, yes. advise people what, what's really going on. Yes. Yes. And the question is one of the questions again, perception reality. What percentage of the patients do you think are insured? And the proverbial answer was 25 to 30 percent. What percent of the patients you think go to shelters? The proverb 25 to 30%. What if I told you that 75% of the patients are insured and three to 5% of the patients go to shelter? Would that change the way you perceive the population? Because heart failure is for the elderly. Patients are between 60 and 90. The bulk of the patients had Medicare. (laughs) Or they were retired union employees had union plans or they were on straight Medicaid. 75% 20, 75% were insured, 25% were not. But when you think about it, because of the age range, you yeah. know, but again, it's the perception reality. And what we were able to track down was to solve the perception reality. And one of the things that came up, particularly with the elderly Black population, which nobody speaks about, the role of religion in this population mm. was pivotal. And so when, you know, um, and a patient said, you know, it's in God's. No, before that story, the patient said, this is on a Wednesday. All I want, and I, all I want is to be able to go to church on Sunday. This was a Wednesday. Yeah. She stopped eating. She stopped, you know, participating. And they're blaming her for being, she doesn't care about her health. And I said, yeah, she's depressed, and you have to get depression screening. Everybody said, yes, call the site, get depression screening. Absolutely. But the other thing you need to do, find out what church she goes to, find out who the minister is, and let me call the the church, the the minister. The minister came in and prayed with her and told her, even if you are not discharged on Sunday, I will come back and pray with you. 
it was a different individual because she wanted to please God. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, so there is the clinical piece, but part of the cultural piece is the role of religion. And I think if we didn't call the minister and had him come in, depression screening would have said she's depressed, but she wouldn't have changed it. She stopped eating. She stopped participating. She was just totally because she said, all I want, what I'm most concerned about, most concerned about that I won't be going to church on Sunday. So when somebody tells you that information, don't judge. Yeah. And, you know, what I heard from you just now, I mean, for this half hour or so that we've been talking that is it's it's training for on the clinical care team to go that extra mile to look at how your workflow is structured and how can we change that because you said the perception is rally where does that perception come from where's that data of perception coming from and have you designed the program the the, the care delivery uh, to 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 get better outcomes by uh, better communication. Yeah, I think what it and again, if if the perception, you know, sometimes people don't they think perception is reality. So there's no need to do data analysis, you know, because what do we do? This is what we're going to find. But the good news is that once we change the dynamics and show the reality of the data that 75% of the patients were insured. And the question was, if you know that, would you treat the patient any different? And it's not to say because people are insured, they should treat any different. Yeah. But yeah. if you think in that negative frame, you know, so he has no insurance, he's not going to be able to afford his medication. You know what I mean? So you have this whole thing that had nothing to do with reality, but it was yeah. not just at that hospital. It's a That's a misdiagnosis. That's what yeah, that is. It, but it's, a, it's in a lot of health system. It's in a, it's in a lot of health system, yeah. you know? And um, it was humbling because um, when you hear their history, you know, and from a cultural perspective, when a patient says, I picked cotton in the South and I paid my dues, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Who understands that? correlation with the cultural. And I think that it's so important. That's why I said cultural competence has to be not as a nicer word, cultural humility. I'm not into the, I don't know if I like the word humility. I'll go with cultural sensitivity a little bit better. You know? But um, I think it's important to realize that it, cultural competence has to be bidirectional. American-born physicians to foreign-born patients. Absolutely. But also foreign-born physicians to American-born patients and American-born physicians to American-born patients who are different than themselves. Because currently, Grant, the English people, English-speaking population is left out of the cultural competence conversation. Mm -hmm. so who are you leaving out? Yes. Very important. And what you just described over and over again, that when you don't have the communication and there the, becomes a gap and you're living in your own perceptions, but that is not what's really happening. I think that's important. So tell me, tell us about your business because you're doing things right now from a training perspective uh, to, to help organizations to have these kinds of conversations. Right. So I created my own company, Morvin Beverly, MDPLLC, Patient Engagement and Cultural Competence. And I've done training at different institutions, different organizations, and collaborated with other entities about to combine 
technology with patient engagement, you know, because everybody's talking about telehealth and, you know, but how do you engage the person who have signed up for whatever it is they signed up for? And then if you, and two weeks later, they said, no, I don't want it. And it has a lot to do with the patient engagement portion of it. And as a learning curve for me as well. Um, but that's what I realized. And so when I educate people and speak to the, I said, let me hear the conversation. So let's say for instance, an elderly person is discharged at home, needs a, um, needs, you know, scale, needs blood pressure machine and so forth. But if you don't know that individual and you don't know whether that person lives alone as opposed to living with family, you know, it may make a difference, you know. Um, and so there's a way of communication. And the other thing that the literature now is showing is that telehealth um, for um, some of the black patients don't particularly like telehealth, you know. And but I, I think it's fixable. And they didn't say because people didn't have the Wi-Fi, they didn't have, you know, the tools. I haven't heard that. But one of the things that I uh, mentioned when I do presentations and training is. If when I come to you. Face to face in your office and you are you are not communicative with me. So do you think that person is going to be communicative with me in a virtual setting? Mm. You know, and I think this is where something, you know, I would want to look into further, you know, because it's if, if so, I'm in your office and you're you're not communicative. And so now I'm going to go on telehealth. Is that going to change the dynamic for the better or is it going to get worse? You know, so it's something to think about. Now, the empathy is real and taking the, nece the ne necessary proactive step to actually talk about the experience with the patient. What, what is your experience? What's going on? Just everything that's going on with you. And can we talk about that? At least listen. Maybe you can't make a lot of change. But if you learn something, and what I heard from your discussion tonight, you learn some things that then all of a sudden like, aha, you know what? I can't do that because you couldn't solve sickle cell. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I can't. I don't have a cure mm -hmm. for that. Uh, but you were able to help her in a number of other ways. And she helped you as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what we realize with, from my perspective, a patient with sickness, there is the unimaginable physical pain when someone is in crisis and the blood flow to organs is just not available. And, but then there is the emotional and mental pain of being called a drug seeker. Mm. And one of the, the physical pain, you know, is part of the disease, but the emotional and mental pain of being called a drug seeker should not be, should not be. The, that person should not encounter two types of pain. One is not necessary and it should not be a part when somebody's in this excruciating pain. And I think there needs to be a national policy to get rid of the word drug seeker because it's not supported by the medical literature. They are the least addicted for people who require pain management, but the most vilified. And why is that? You know, and, um, and when they graduate, 
college, I mean, high school, and they're going to college, we should celebrate. Yeah, midway, celebrate. Yeah. And bring in the health plan because if now you're in New York, but you're going upstate, maybe to Buffalo to medical to school, or you're going to South Carolina, wherever you go in Boston, does your health plan cover you? out of state. And this is something that we were planning on having a celebration and bringing in the health plans to go over, to explain. Because at that age, you know, when my kids were that age, nobody knew anything about health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. and, you know, we didn't, we still don't know anything about, enough about health insurance. But it just tells you that, and one of the, the statements from the patient was, do they treat us this way because of, because of who we are? I have dreams and aspirations like anybody else. And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, those health and, equity and, and all those the buzzwords don't uh, yeah. don't change anything. No. The, the realities are the realities. We have to hit them head on. And I, I applaud what you are doing because you're bringing a conversation that we don't necessarily have from the from the clinical side of things and understanding and they're, they they've got you know everybody knows right now with the labor shortages the, the ability there's the shorter time um, span to even spend with uh, patients uh, and these are big things so any kind of help that you, you know, can give from a training perspective and make the interactions that you do have with a patient effective you've got 5 10 15 minutes make them as best as possible Right. But you know what's interesting? So if you decrease the readmission, you know, less people coming in, that's going to be, quote, you know, you know, viewed and the nurse get upset or the doctor get upset. So you readmitted for not following. But if you decrease that, it changes the dynamics. It really yeah. did, you know. Yeah. And what I found, which and again, is one of those stop in your tracks moment. I remember on the team one of the nurse came over, she was not a part of the team, but she said, you know, that patient over there is non-compliant. And the nurse said on the team, no, 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 go ask him why, go ask him why. <laughs> so it was the each one teach one. Right. So it didn't come from me, it didn't come from the top. It came from, you know, um, you know, um, their, um, their, their, their other, you know, co co-workers. And I remember she said, no, 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 go ask him why, go ask him, find out why. Well, I tell you, we wanted, I know what the audience wants to ask you a lot of the questions. You brought up a good things like lowering readmissions is huge with your program. So what, what is the best way for the audience to get in touch with you? Okay, yes, they could, um, my email address, um, you could put it in chat, I guess, it's mbeverlymd at gmail.com. And that would be the easiest way. And you have uh, a website as well. I have a website. I was going to say I have a website as well at drbeverly.com, you know, and um, so that's that would be um, a great source as well. And I just want to let you know, I'm going to be a part of a panel in Chicago on health disparity, you know, at the, um, you know, so I'm very excited about that to be able to be in a discussion and it's going to be a lot of different rush medical center and Aurora and, you know, um, Chicago university, you know, and what I'm learning in Chicago, there's a lot of hospitals, <laughs> you know, um, like New York. And, um, you know, so the concepts, um, I think is being 
looked at, as you say, it's a different way of approaching. Yeah. It's very highly, you know, um, it's high, you know, um, this highly controversial topic. And that, that's fine. We're going to go ahead and, and conclude um, this conversation. I'm going to encourage the audience, even if they cannot uh, attend in person, um, right. a lot of times there at least there's there's backup notes on the uh, conference and what, what's going on. It might be recorded, so there might be a virtual um, uh, video uh, of the mm -hmm. conference, and I think that would be wonderful. You have given us a lot of food for thought. I encourage all of our audience, especially our hospital executives, to examine some of the things that you brought up and, and look at their teams and see how that can be very, very impactful. You do have a training program that they can engage right. with you. Absolutely. On. As a consultant, um, that's what I do. And uh, I just presented in April in Social Work Month at Northwell. Awesome. Know? Awesome. And awesome. Uh, so it's, it's multidisciplinary. You know, and it really, and like I said, one of the end of the, the survey, one of the questions that I focus on after hearing the presentation, would it change the way you react to patients? And over 90 plus percent always said, yes, they would. I can see the hands going up already. My hands are already yeah. going up because you yeah. changed my perception on uh, a lot of things. So yeah. this has been wonderful. I'm going to okay. encourage the entire audience to listen to all the different episodes on the Follow the Brand. You can tune in at www.5starbdm, that's B for brand, D for development, infomasters.com. And I want to thank you very much for Dr. Beverly for being a guest on the show. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It was great. And I'm uh, looking forward to continued collaboration with you. Absolutely. Uh, you take care. You too. Have a great evening and stay safe. I will.